0: From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome back to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I have the gift of talking to Rodrigo Garcia, director, producer, screenwriter, book writer, all around supporter of the arts. Rodrigo created HBO's series In Treatment, has directed episodes of incredible TV shows such as Six Feet Under, Big Love, The Affair, The Sopranos, Carnival, and more. His films include Four Good Days, Albert Nobbs, Mother and Child, Nine Lives, and now his most recent film, Raymond and Ray, which will be streaming on Apple TV on October 21st. Rodrigo, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so thrilled that you're here. My pleasure i like to jump just all the way back to the beginning for the first question, because you come from really a legacy of artists. And I really want to hear what it was to grow up and when you decided you were going to be a storyteller.
1: Well, you know, because my father, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, is such a well-known writer, I, I find that sometimes people think that my childhood was one thing that it wasn't. When we were kids, my brother and I, growing up mostly in Mexico City and some in Barcelona, the time is divided into two. Before the age of eight, when my father was an unknown writer and worked in advertising and a little bit in uh, screenwriting. And then after my age of eight, when 100 Years of Solitude came out and he became famous. But both in Barcelona and in Mexico, we lived fairly middle-class lives. You know, the only thing was we did not know any businessmen. Mm. Everyone we knew was an artist. We knew some doctors and scientists. But everyone was an artist, a filmmaker you know, a a film director or a novelist. The only people we knew who were not artists were in advertising, and those were writers and artists making a living in (laughs) advertising, including my father. But it was an environment where, obviously, reading, writing, movies, storytelling was highly praised, you know. There is nothing better than something well told. There is nothing better than something well written. You know, these are the things we heard over and over again. Those were the mantras. Mm. So that was the environment. Yeah, we were doomed from the beginning.
0: Was there ever a time you didn't know you were going to be a storyteller?
1: Uh, Yes. I honestly didn't think I was going to be anything. I didn't give a moment's thought to my future till maybe the last year of high school. You know, Mm -hmm. I knew I liked photography. I was a still photographer, and I did what kids did back then, which is you had your own lab in a little room or bathroom in your house, and you developed your own negative and your own prints. And then in college, I had no idea. I had to pick a major by Tuesday, so I picked history. And I ended up majoring in medieval history, which was also a, you know, from a storytelling approach. Like I loved what the period suggested for me and how, in some ways, it is, for example, much, much closer to the present than ancient Greece or ancient Rome. And yet it felt more extraterrestrial somehow. It seemed like a very odd age. So I came to it. In a, in a sort of storytelling interest with no desire really to become a historian. And it was during that period where I continued to do still photography, and then I started getting more and more interested in cinematography. And so after college, that's what I pursued. I pursued the, uh, the process that used to make you a cinematographer back then, which was, you know, you had to be a camera intern and then a second, second assistant, second assistant first assistant, focus puller, camera operator. This was decades before you could shoot and edit a movie on your phone.
0: You went to AFI, didn't you?
1: I went to AFI as a cinematographer. I had already been a camera assistant for a few years, and I went to AFI. I was in the cinematographer track.
0: What was it about cinematography that that was the choice?
1: You know, it was an extension of my interest in visuals and and still photography. I think by the time I went to AFI, I must have been 26 or 27. I was always very interested in what directors, We're doing and how screenplays worked. You know, I did, after all, grow up seeing my father hashing out screenplays with writers and directors in the living room of the house. You Mm -hmm. know, they would sit there all afternoon. I knew there was a um, practice and a passion that people had for screenwriting. And then while working on sets, even film school sets, you know, I was always interested in what the director was saying to the actors and how the actors were processing and how they approached their own work. But I'm, I'm, kind of stunned to think now that for years it never occurred to me that I might do it. You know, it, it was yet another 10 years before I said, okay, I'm going to try to write a screenplay.
0: What was the impetus to write the screenplay?
1: <sighs> it's hard to say, but, and, and I mean, I'm going to take a stab at this because I, I, I just have a hunch about it, that, you know, when you are growing up, when you're in your teens and 20s, so much of your fantasy life is about what is my life going to be? Where am I going to live? What am I going to do? Who will I marry? Who will the kids be if I have them? What would the house be like? And I think after I was married and our two daughters were born, or even before, when after our first daughter was born, I think kind of unconsciously I had that feeling that a lot of the daydreaming had now died mm. because I couldn't be fantasizing about who will I marry? Will I have a kid? Where will I live? What will I do for work? Things became very concrete. Not that they were stuck in, they're not uh, carved in stone. Life can evolve. But I think out of that feeling of, where is my fantasy life going to be now, came this idea of of inventing, of trying to invent things and, you know, to put it bluntly, a resistance to growing up.
0: That resonates. <laughs> yes, that rings a bell with a lot of people, I'm sure. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks to me at looking at your track record of once you made this jump to directing and writing, you didn't really go back to DPing or camera operating.
1: No, I, you know, I wrote several shorts and then I finally I wrote a screenplay that got a good attention and I was invited to the Sundance lab. And one of the um, advisors at the lab was the producer and director, John Avnet, and he really liked the script. I mean, he's now my partner in many things. So he produced the first movie, things you can tell just by looking at her. And he, of course, you know, he was very successful. He had a lot of access. He put the script in front of some great actresses. You know, my head was spinning thinking of the people I was going to work with. But I knew that this interested me more. I had been camera operator to Chivo Lubeski, who was already a very good DP and is now one of the great DPs of the world. So I asked him to shoot it. It also helped me that I was not a great cinematographer. You know, I I, I was a little frustrated. I learned along the way and I could do it and occasionally I did it well, but I was doing it from my brain and not from instincts. You know, I think to take things from doing them well to doing them better than well, there has to be something that comes from you instinctually. Mm. And I was always just doing cinematography with my brain. And so I I could never um, take it to the next level. So it wasn't a hard thing to give up.
0: So instinctually, when you go to your writing and your directing, what is your process when you're starting a project and finding what the story is?
1: Well, things occur to me all the time. You know, I have ideas, but the difference between an idea and a story is big. Everyone has an idea for a movie, but it's the, and then what? Yeah. You can say, okay, I have an idea about this man who wakes up one day and has been turned into an enormous insect. Okay. And then what? (laughs) You know, that's an idea. That's not a story. So I tend to, when I have ideas, I gravitate towards the ones where the idea is the beginning of a conflict and I can see where it would go so that I don't have a concept. I have the bones of a story. And what I do is I live with it for two or three days. Many of them fizzle after two or three days. You just lose interest in them. If not, I just keep thinking everything I can without writing. I keep adding to it. You know, who else could be in it? How long does it take? Does the story take place over two days or over 30 years? Who are the surrounding characters? And I keep that in my head until it grows. And then I just put it down in notes form. Mm -hmm. So I'm always delaying writing until more ideas come. So once I can no longer hold all the ideas or I get a little nervous that I might forget them, I write them down in notes form. And I add to that every day, every day, every day, until I have a sense of the main chapters of the story, how it starts, the two or three or four turning points, and how it ends. Once I have that, I will sometimes write an outline, but mostly I will just start writing. But I'm writing knowing, like I I often know what the last scene is. Mm. So I don't write an outline, but I have enough notes and enough ideas that I think I know what the main milestones of the story are. Now, that all sounds very elegant, but once you start, it can all just collapse.
0: When you get stuck and you're, you're writing and or things are collapsing, what do you do to get out of it?
1: Anything you can. I mean, I, I say to people I've taught at the Sundance Writer's Lab. You know, I went there with my own scripts and, and I've, I've been a a mentor there several times, and also the Film Independent Labs. And, you know, I also have been a mentor to DGA programs and Writer Guild's program. And what I tell starting writers is there's only one objective to your first draft, and that is to reach the last page. Because there are so many reasons to quit. So much difficulty, technical stuff that you may not know, There is always that voice in your head that says, this sucks, who cares? And the more dangerous one is that halfway through when you're stuck, you'll say, oh, I have a better idea. I'll Mm -hmm. start that one. And you'll be stuck halfway through that one. Mm -hmm. So you just have to barrel through to the last page, even if what you're writing is making your stomach turn. Because the things that you learn by reaching the last page of a draft, you can only learn by reaching the last page of a draft. Mm -hmm. There's no, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to learn how to swim, but not in the water. (laughs) That doesn't work that way. You can only learn certain things by reaching the last page. So what do I do when I get stuck? Sometimes I'm truly stuck, but I'm still opening the page every day, picking at it, adding a few lines, rereading it from the beginning, not rereading it for a while. And if I'm truly stuck, what I'll do is say I'm on page 55 and stuck. I will write scenes that I know are coming just individual scenes so that I'm still producing pages. Mm. And I've even, God help me, have written the final scene and then have written the second to last scene and the second to second to last scene. And so at one point, I'm writing the script in two directions yeah. until it meets like train tracks used to meet in the it's, middle of it's the country. a
0: good way of burning the candle at both <laughs> ends.
1: <laughs> well, it is because as long as you're producing pages, you're learning something and yeah. also you're getting a sense of progress. Yeah. The more you write screenplays or anything, I suppose, I only have screenplays as a reference, you know that you just have to keep yourself going mm. and that you have to be producing pages. And often when you're really stuck, one of the things that makes me believe that I will finish this screenplay is only because I've done it before. I've been this desperate before and I've been this stuck before, and yet I finished it. Mm-hmm. That's why the more scripts you write, the more you say, it's got to be possible. I've done it before. I've been this stuck before. You just have to believe.
0: I saw a a video of a speech you gave to, I can't remember what year it was, but the the Nichols winners. And you basically said the industry is going to try and pay you not to be an artist. And I encourage you to be the artist, which I loved. And I'm going to save that video and I'm going to watch it every day. Um, (laughs) What did you do to find your voice? And what do you do now to hang on to it?
1: I mean, I believe what I said that time, but obviously there's people in the industry and people in studios and, and digital platforms who do know how to work with artists. You, you know, you'll have to battle with them like you battle with anyone. I mean, there's no no two people have the same idea about anything mm-hmm. in in the world of storytelling. But yes, that is, you know, obviously I think if you are writing, and no disrespect to these writers because they do it very well, but I think if, if I was writing a Marvel movie, for example... You can't come in and reinvent it all. Of course, they're hungry for story. So you I suppose you have to come in and, and bring something that an idea that feeds into the long story of the Marvels and the Star Treks and the Star right. Wars.
0: But it's not yours. It's not
1: mine. yeah and, and and it would be frustrating for me. So, you know, for me, the real pleasure is the coming the zero, you know, coming from the idea, writing the script. I mean, the words written and directed by are some of the most beautiful words in the language for me. And, of course, you didn't do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you always had feedback. You had readers, producers, friends, what the heads of department bring, the designers, the cameramen, the actors, of course, the editor, the composer. It's never just you, but the idea that something that came out of the dark recesses of your brain in the middle of the night and you wrote by yourself and then can bring all these people together and there's a movie at the other end of it that's that's very satisfying
0: you often work uh, in repeat ways with your cast and your crew and, and all of these people that you've sort of formed a community with so what what is it that you find in people that you want to work with again
1: well, I've had a very good lucky run of working with excellent actors. Many of them started with the first movie that I did that i mentioned that John Avnet produced. I mean, Glenn Close, the biggest example, although I've worked several times with Kathy Baker, with Amy Brenneman. They're very good actors. Mm-hmm. And, and what do I mean by good actors? Not only do they have the skills of acting and the imagination and the emotion but there are certain things they project. There are certain things that an actor does for a director that explains why directors go back to the same actors time and time again. You know, someone like Glenn Close, for example, you know, she's a terrific actor, very in touch with emotion, very in the moment. But also there's just something that she projects that is a lot of inner life, intelligence, Mm -hmm. emotion. You feel that there's a lot going on in there, and that you can't teach. That's beyond acting. That's just what the camera sees. And there's also an area that can't be broken down. It's just how I respond to these faces and these emotions, or how every director does it. And every time I find an actor like this, you know, I want to work with them again. Plus, just the fact that some people are good to work with. You don't want to be working with people who are rude or nasty or, I mean, it's okay to disagree and it's even okay to get grumpy every now and then. But you want people who are just there working and, you know, working it out. So yeah, it's beyond acting. And I think that's, you know, that's something that's frustrating for younger actors and auditioning. They feel, oh, I don't know if, what are they looking for? I did, I did so well. Why didn't they cast me? Oh, I really screwed that up. Oh, I really think I got that. You know, when you come to callbacks, when I'm seeing, say, the last four or five actors for a supporting role for callbacks, everyone there is a good actor already. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't bring anyone to a callback who's not a good actor or even a very good actor. The callback is just about me making up my mind who I want that character to be. Mm -hmm. So in some ways that should be liberating to actors, but it's still frustrating. You know, I went in and I did so well. But I didn't quite see him or her in that role. Or maybe once I saw her, I realized, oh, I think it should be someone a little older. Mm -hmm. Or um, I'm not quite feeling the chemistry that he or she might have with the other actor. Or sometimes very simple, uh, an actor will come in to play a role and they look a little too much like another actor that I've just cast for another role. Mm. I'm rambling now, aren't I? No, I I
0: come from a background in acting, so I love hearing about it. Yeah, so,
1: you know, it's... um, (laughs) I mean, I worked a lot last year. I did, you know, produced a series in Colombia and produced and directed something in Argentina. So I met a whole new set of actors that I didn't know. Yeah. And it was a a reminder that, uh, yeah, no, all these three guys that came for the callback are excellent. First of all, who do I imagine most in the role? Yeah. So it's not you, it's me, as they say (laughs) when they break your heart.
0: Just because I mentioned I'm an actor, I actually went to school at CalArts, and I saw that sure. you're on the board of trustees. I
1: am on the board. I was invited to be there about, uh, I'm in my second term, so it could be five years now. I, you know, it's one of the great art schools.
0: What is it to be in a position of fostering new artists, and, and is that why you do it?
1: In all frankness, being on the board and being a teacher are two very different things. You know, on the board of an organization, you are helping guide, guide, keep the mission on course, Mm -hmm. governance, and a little bit more overall things. But it is a school of artists, so I'm interested in being part of the team that establishes the general vision and the direction and the governance of a school. At the board level, you're able to You know, to make sure CalArts is always an improved version of itself, very different from teaching a class, which I enjoy. I often um, read scripts from young people that are sent to me or through the unions or programs or colleagues. And I often help young actors with auditions, prepare for auditions. Not that much, because although I offer it, they... Don't know if it's an honest offer mm-hmm. or they're too scared to call me, mm-hmm. but I do it. I think if you have good fortune, it's your obligation to help others. It's just a no brainer. I love that. Um. I, I mean, it's work. <laughs> I'm not always in the mood. <laughs> and sometimes I have to read five scripts when I'd rather just fall asleep, but you have to do it.
0: Does it ever, like in a cyclical nature, does that ever inspire you then to see the up and coming? artists sending you scripts and all of that?
1: Yeah, there's always good stuff. And it's like all teaching, it helps you review your own fundamentals. You know, you're Mm -hmm. looking at something and saying, okay, why doesn't this work? What could make it work? Every time I've been to the Sundance lab, for example, you know, where I'm submerged there for five days at the Sundance Resort in Utah, usually with a great group of mentors, I mean, top writers are there among us. You come back energized. You've just revised your fundamentals, and whatever you teach, you take back to your own work.
0: Solar, from Curto Media. NASC located the Athon two days ago, however, we have not established contact. What was that? I do not detect any abnormalities. The lights are getting brighter. Is the electricity overloading? Everything is nominal. What are the odds of survival for the Aethon crew? We won't speculate on those circumstances. I'm sure you can understand. Solar, a fully immersive sonic adventure with revolutionary sound from Dolby Atmos. Incoming message from Jamal. Except, accept. accept. Ah!
1: Starring Academy Award winner Helen Hunt. If we deviate from the plan even by an hour, we lose everything. Tony Award winner Alan Cumming.
0: I'm simply not willing to risk the lives of any crew members for the sake of an experiment. Stephanie Beatrice. I'm gonna save you,
1: Jamal. And Jonathan Bangs. One problem at a time, Ren. Solar. Shadows are darker this close to the sun. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.
0: So, to get to the film at hand, Raymond and Ray, I've actually watched this twice, and the first time I watched it was in a, a screening room, and it was in the middle of the day, and it was definitely one of those where I was like, <sighs> driving to the other side of town to watch a movie at like 11 a.m. <laughs> feels really weird. And I walked in, and I, it was like this 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 wonderful, heartwarming uh, environment to kind of sit in. It's, it's very subtle and patient and funny and sweet. And I I truly enjoyed this film. So now I'm just going to gush over it.
1: Oh, please don't stop.
0: (laughs) I really want to go back to how you said your, your writing and your directing is instinctual. So where did this film come from in you?
1: I have no idea where it came from. You know, I had the idea initially it was just one man, one son, physically digging the grave of a father who had been a very unhappy person and very self-loathing. And uh, this man was a jazz musician, like one of the characters in the movie is. And I managed to write just like a 30-minute short. The Reverend was there, Reverend West, and also a woman showed up with a child, a woman who used to know the father. But I couldn't really expand it. I don't know where it came from. And then a couple years later, I thought, well, maybe there could be two half-brothers where they shared the father and the misery that came with being the son of that father. But they each had their mother, so they had been brothers together, but also some things they didn't share. And that kind of blew it up for me. I mean, it's such an elementary idea to think that it took me two years to say, oh, it could be two brothers. But that's how creativity works. You know, very Mm -hmm. simple things sometimes just don't come to you. The only thing I can think of as the source, I have a person I'm very close to who, did not love their dad Mm. at all, and did not feel sad when the father died. And that always stunned me. And the father was nowhere near as horrid as Harris, the dad in the movie, was. But for me, it was like, well, what is that like? Of course, the guys in the movie, Raymond and Ray, they don't have that detachment. They are truly (laughs) in the pain of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I always thought, that Raymond is in more pain. He's the one repeating the mantra, it's okay, we have to forgive him, he was only human, things were done to him too. But under all that wish to forgive is a super angry person. And, you know, we don't want to do any spoilers, but I think that anger finally comes out mm-hmm. in an undeniable way. Mm-hmm. And then Ray, who's more seems more blasé and seems more in touch with his pain, he's like, oh, he was a fucker, he terrible Um, you know it's fine that he's dead nobody cares nobody's gonna come to the funeral he's not over it either you know and I I like that I like the men denying their feelings do men ever deny their feelings no never that never never Never. happens (laughs) how original that was (laughs)
0: So to talk about these two characters, Raymond and Ray, who are played by Ewan McGregor and Ethan
1: Hawke. Rather well. Would you agree? Well.
0: I, I would say they they, they kind of know what they're doing, they these really, guys. They
1: really killed it. And the chemistry between them is undeniable. Is, is really... I was very happy with that.
0: Actually, that is a question I had of, like, did they do anything to form that brother bond?
1: You know, they always knew each other a little bit in passing. They had friends in common. And I I think I can reveal this because there's no names. You know, Ewan said to me when he first met Ethan, he says, oh, I really get along with him. We hate a lot of the same people, (laughs) which I thought was just wonderful. But you can't make up chemistry. All three of us had a hunch that they could have it and that Mm -hmm. they, they wanted to have it. You know, it just came to be. It's not something that you rehearse or learn. I mean, of course, there's brotherly stuff in the script. They have the brotherly jabbing and the jokes and the shared history, but they added a lot of that humor. You know, when I saw the screening at the Toronto Film Festival, I was surprised at how much people laughed at things that I didn't see. And what people were laughing at was the little crap between brothers yeah. that was not really scripted, that is an attitude.
0: Isn't that always funny, though, when you, you go to a project and you're so floored by what the audience suddenly uh, sees in front of them that you've never that you've never experienced.
1: Yeah, you're especially floored when they're laughing at things they shouldn't be laughing at. But in this case <laughs> it was they were the right things, so I was happily floored.
0: When did you know you wanted Ewan McGregor and Ethan Hawke in it?
1: People ask me if I had any of them in mind. The truth is when you're writing your idea of the story and the characters is evolving all the time. So I must have thought about ten actors when I'm writing, but I don't hold on to them. This is just what I'm playing around with. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, is this better with a cello? Is this better with an oboe? Is this better with a piano? You're just thinking. By the time I was done, you know, I do what I always do, which is first whom among those people that we were discussing before, the actors that I like, that I've worked with, that I'm friends with, they're at least affectionate acquaintances. You know, Ewan came to mind. I'd recently done a movie with him, Last Days in the Desert, so he came to mind immediately. He read it and liked it. And we had a window there where we would have been able to do it very quickly because he had a window. This was the year before the pandemic. The year before the pandemic. How literary. <laughs> this is how we talk now. Um, and we scrambled, but we couldn't cast anyone. But Ethan was always in the soup for us. You know, mm-hmm. He's one when I first discussed with Ewan, he was there. So when we came back last year, he, he was the first guy we went to. And so it came together. I don't want to discuss too much why I thought they would work for it. I think when you give over a part, you really have to give it up. You know, now Raymond is Ewan and Ray is Ethan. I can't invite them to be my Raymond and Ray. I invite them over to be the Raymond and Ray that they're going to get from my pages and that then I will see on this, you know, it's, it's mm. additive. They react to my script, then I react to their performance. And it's like a a circle.
0: So then when you're on set, what is your process of directing once you've handed them the characters and you're, you're trusting them?
1: Because we were all in different parts of the country, we did meet once on Zoom just to read their scenes together. And then we met two days before we started production just to read their scenes again. I'm always very reluctant to give direction, especially if I wrote the script. I don't come from the theater, so I'm a little nervous with rehearsal. Mm. The idea that you break everything down to its nuts and bolts and then you build it back up again. You know, most film directors are made very nervous by that. So we read it, you know, we can discuss generalities about fathers and sons, and I think it's always good to spill some of your personal beans so that they will feel encouraged to go to their personal places. But I don't want to say, oh, this is how I see it, or this is how I think it should be played. I mean, I'll answer questions if I'm asked, but I'm not like in a rush to tell them what I think it needs to be. Actors, like all artists, work from their imagination. I mean, of course, their craft and their preparation and all sorts of things. But imagination is a main motor. And I think you don't want actors acting with your voice in their head because mm-hmm. then they're late in the game after you've done a couple angles, take three, take four. Then I can start adding little things. This lesson was taught to me by Callista Flockhart. I worked with her on my first movie and there was a scene that is sadly not in the movie. She is taking care of her girlfriend who is dying. And at one point, there was a scene where she went to the kitchen, came back, and the girl had died while she was in the kitchen preparing coffee or something. And so we were going to do that scene that is the camera on her, her reaction to walking into the room and seeing that her girlfriend had died. We do one take, and when we're about to do another take, I'm going to say something to her. And she says to me, no, don't say anything. I don't want you in my head yet. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting. You know, she's trying to do a very big emotional scene for which she has prepped. And to prep for a scene like this, you have to go to personal places because how do you prep for walk into the room and my lover is dead? As an actor, you have to go places. If I had been in her head, that's all she'd be thinking about coming through the door. So that's one of the big directing lessons of my life. So I have Callista to thank for that.
0: That's a great lesson.
1: Or, or as my friend Rob Spera, who was with me at AFI, a director also and a great directing teacher says, direct at your own risk. My version of that is don't direct till you absolutely have to direct.
0: Now, you guys shot on location, correct?
1: In Richmond, Virginia, yeah.
0: Do you like shooting on location?
1: Uh, I do. You know, a, a lot of my movies have been set in L.A. and they've mostly been regular middle class people in contemporary, psychologically grounded, middle-class environments. But I've gotten more and more interested in going somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think when I did the movie Albert Knobs in Ireland, that was my first encounter with going to a different country and a different culture, and in that case, also a different period. Mm-hmm. So it was a whole headspace. And that's where I started to get that taste that so many directors have that a movie should take you physically somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then I did Last Days in the Desert, in the desert, obviously. And now I'm more inclined to just let the movie itself be a physical journey also. I mean, this sounds so elementary, but most directors want to do this. My first few movies were just about the relationship, and that can be set anywhere. In fact, for me, the more banal the setting, the better. I I like these movies where... The high drama is played in blau places. The movie I did, Nine Lives, a lot of the drama plays out in a supermarket and in someone's bedroom, and I love that, setting stuff in banal settings. But now, now I'm all for it. I'd written this to play in either the South or perhaps the Rust Belt, and then when we found that there was a good opportunity for creative and budgetary and logistical reasons to shoot in Richmond, I just said it in Richmond. I mean it was a story that could happen anywhere and so we leaned into it. You know, I, I'm not a big fan, having said that I like to travel, I'm not a big fan of going somewhere to play another city. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I don't want to go to Toronto to play for LA. Chicago. <laughs> yeah. No, let's just if we could, let's just set it in Toronto. Yeah, yeah.
0: I love being on location, and I, it's so interesting to me because I feel like it's a very polarizing question for filmmakers. Either they love it or they hate it.
1: Well, I mean, obviously, if you have family, if you have kids, a marriage, dogs, you know, elderly parents, it puts a strain. Yeah. But now that my daughters are older, they're in their twenties. Movie in Africa, sign me up.
0: How long did Raymond and Ray take to shoot?
1: Uh, 30-plus days, more than I usually have.
0: A lot of it is actually in the graveyard.
1: Yeah, that was about two weeks or just a little over two weeks. And it's a huge cemetery in Richmond. We had David Crank, a very good production designer, and he found a little island so that we're not literally shooting and stepping on actual graves. Mm -hmm. The graves that are there are graves that we have placed But just beyond the island where the action happens are thousands of graves. Mm. Uh, Really a spectacular place.
0: How does it inform the story to actually be in a location as opposed to on a set?
1: I like to be on location. I mean, sometimes a set is just more practical. You know, if you're going to do 20 pages in someone's bedroom, it can be tricky. Just the space to light and days for nights and nights for days. The best example of this is when we did Last Days in the Desert, we were out in the uh, Anza-Borrego desert, and we shot that almost like a documentary. And it was great to be out there. You know, we're shooting the movie only with available light. Mm-hmm. So if you walked 200 feet in that direction, you could disconnect from the set because you were in the desert. Mm-hmm. And and McGregor, who starred in the movie, talked about this. He said it was great. You could walk 100 yards, and there I was, the character in the desert. So, that it takes you back to this idea of the reluctance to direct because I feel sometimes it should be called reacting, not directing. I feel like if I've written the script, that's the single biggest piece of direction I can give. Then everyone gives me their input on that the heads of department, the DP, and the actors. And then I react to what I'm given. And I think being on a location like that. Every time at dusk or at night when we walked away from that, we're walking through graves and it keeps it real. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Several times you've revisited the themes of death or of drugs, and both of those are in Raymond and Ray. What is it that draws you to those types of stories?
1: I mean, is any story not about death? <laughs> you know, I think I think writers are obsessed with death. I don't know what that is. Certainly fiction writers, not necessarily screenwriters, but novelists, I think, you know, if you're a writer, you're, you're ordering things. You're trying to find or at least trying to make sense or to talk sensibly of things that make no sense. Mm. And nothing is more normal and nonsensical than the fact that life ends, that a living person will no longer exist. So I think for writers, it's, uh, it's impossible. And then past a certain age, I mean, right now, my problem is I have ideas I'm working on and I'm trying to not make them all about death, <laughs> you know, so explicitly. Yeah. And listen, as far back as we know, you know, death was a, it's a central part. You know, most stories are about that.
0: To go back to Raymond and Ray. When I went in, I didn't know much. The first time I saw it, I didn't know much about what it was. So I didn't necessarily know that there was a musician in it. And the first thing that jumped out at me was the music choice in the film. And it felt different and it felt like it really put you somewhere. I would love to hear about your your collaboration with Jeff Beale. Jeff Beale, what it was working with him as the composer and what the choice of music was that informed this film.
1: I always thought that I wanted a score that was, I felt like the film was very American. There was something about The Broken Family, the road movie, something felt very, very American about it. So I always thought there was the jazz component because Ray is a jazz player. Mm -hmm. And that's why I thought of Jeff Beal. He's a terrific jazz player and a great trumpet player. He plays the trumpet in the movie and, you know, a real jazz guy. So I thought of him for what Ray plays. And initially, we discussed not using jazz for the score overall so that we could leave the jazz to Ray. And we went down a couple of routes that were a little bit more um, sort of Americana. But, but yeah, the, the jazz was undeniable. So we found a balance between using jazz as the score but leaving the really, the height of jazz are the pieces that, that Ray plays. The trumpet can have that mournful quality yeah. of, of um, saying goodbye in cemetery.
0: Yeah, I almost thought Ray would play taps. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, uh. it, Well, he does play a kind of taps, but it's a jazzy taps and it's also a, look what I can do.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you have a moment during production that stands out to you as something that really fills your soul and, and that you really, truly loved?
1: Well, a lot of the humor, not just the humor between brothers... You know, I, I don't want to skip over people like Maribel Verdú who plays Lucia, or Sofía Conedo. I don't want to say there are no surprises there. No, there were no surprises because I knew they were going to be wonderful <laughs> and they were great. So I like what I didn't expect. You know, I didn't expect Reverend West, as played by Von Curtis Hall, to be such a character, just the way he dresses and the way he moves and he's cool. hmm And Todd Loaizo, who played the funeral director, brought a lot of humor to it also. I'd wrote him a little bit in that sort of diplomatic vein that, you know, funeral people have, but he brought some fun and some eccentricity to it. I I tell you what I remember fondly, but merely out of sheer relief, uh, without doing any spoilers, you know, there is that moment in the cemetery where they open the coffin Mm
0: -hmm. and what
1: they see and how everyone reacts. That always scared me. How is that going to play? How oh, is going to be a bear to direct? But we did the rehearsal right there, you know, the lineup, as it's called. And everyone knew how they had to react, who they were, what they needed to do. It was just, even from the rehearsal, I thought, oh, okay, this could work. Mm. So that's a pleasurable memory because it was a moment of great relief that what is arguably the central scene in the movie was not something that I was going to have to, you know, fight to get. Mm-hmm. Everyone was just where they needed to be. So that was a relief.
0: It's funny to go back to how you said you as a filmmaker are nervous about theater. That, that scares you. And I think one of the things that struck me about this film was it really feels like a play to me, in the best way, because the words are so important, often in films they're not it's more about the action or what you're seeing or whatever so at that moment felt very much like a piece of theater to me
1: but here's the thing here's where I agree and disagree is I think words are important but it's how words land the silences between words for me are equally important you know and that's where I'm not saying theater doesn't do it it does I would know how to do it if I directed theater but for me You know, people are very attached to the words, but it's how the words land. And as much as I love dialogue and I work very hard at it and I enjoy it tremendously in movies and I try to be an integral part of my movies, I feel that the big scenes in movies should not be about dialogue. To give you an example, but I'm not trying to not give anything away, you know, what Raymond does at the site of the funeral, what Ray does right there at the grave what you know opening the casket or um ray running after that car or raymond's wallet falling out of his pocket Mm -hmm. you know i feel like the the later you get in a movie the more the payoffs should be about visual things words are wonderful but if you can do the big kapow with an image i think in movies that's undeniable and listen, we quote movies all the time. Good movie dialogue is great. Bueller, Bueller, <laughs> you know, but, um, but a good image, I mean, there's nothing like that.
0: Because you came from photography, cinematography, and all of that, do you think visually for your story first?
1: I think everything at the same time. You know, when I think, when I initially think of the story, I think of the conflict. Mm hmm brothers having to bury a father that they don't want to bury a couple in a supermarket who were once lovers and meet years later and then find out there's still something there you know those are conflicts Mm. but then in the writing as i'm turning ideas into scenes or even before i write there are some things that visually are the way they are i mean it's 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 all part and parcel some of it is words some of it is pictures I do have an idea of when I write a scene, whether it's playing in close-ups and wide shots. I mean, it can, of course, evolve, but it all happens part and parcel.
0: Do you revisit your own movies? Uh, No.
1: I mean, you know, it's not unusual. I have a very complicated relationship with the movies. Right now, I'm high on Raymond and Ray because people are enjoying it so much. (laughs) You know, so it's like, okay, okay. You like my girlfriend? Yeah, I like her too. Good, good. People, okay. People are responding to my girlfriend. She's cute. But usually I can't. And it's only later, four, five, six years later, I'll see it on an airplane and think, oh, this isn't so bad. But no, by the time you finish a movie, like I saw it in Toronto. Uh I may see it one more time in a theater when the week it opens. But, you know, I won't be seeing it for a long time.
0: Because are you seeing things you wish you could change?
1: It's just complicated. It's like, it's like seeing yourself naked on stage. You know, it's like, oh, God, really? Could have lost a few pounds before this.
0: <laughs> oh, well, I enjoy the movie. <laughs> Thank um, you. So my final question before we wrap up, and I ask everybody this, because I think it's so incredible that people are able to have a life and a, a career in the arts. So what does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling?
1: I mean, it's a ridiculous privilege. And as I've exemplified in half of this interview, you know, I love to whine. You know, (laughs) as a director and as an artist, we're whining and complaining all the time. But it's like I said, you know, you have an idea in the middle of the night. You sit down to write it. Writing it is full of ups and downs and insecurities. But then that can turn into something people like and will put up money for. And world-class actors will jump into it, and now people will see it. I mean, it's incredibly privileged to be a film director. That's the truth. Especially, you know, in my case, where I write my own scripts, I have never had big commercial success. I I get a lot of TLC, but I don't have big commercial success. And I continue to get away with it. Murder, he (laughs) wrote. So it's amazing. What, telling stories for a living? Could anything be better? I don't think so. No.
0: Rodrigo, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Raymond and Ray comes out on Apple TV and in select theaters on October 21st.
1: Select theaters October 14 and uh, on Apple TV forever. Forever. October 21st.
0: And we'll all watch it a million times since you won't. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yes, please. That would be wonderful. Thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you.
0: Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co. Media. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest Rodrigo Garcia. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. This episode was recorded at Shane Salk Productions. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.